Good morning, Family Church. We've been in John chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to John chapter 10. We've seen the relationship between the Good Shepherd and his sheep. Last week, we looked at this perfect relationship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. This morning, we're going to pick up in verse 30, where we ended last week. And Jesus, talking to the religious leaders here, said in verse 30 of chapter 10, I and the Father are one. We looked at that a little bit last week regarding the Trinity, but Jesus is teaching here that he is of the same essence of God himself. It's a matter of their wills. Their wills are the same as well. This Trinity is in perfect unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfect unity amongst themselves, but also perfect unity when we compare them to the Scriptures as well. How the Scripture talks about the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They line up with that, but they also line up in perfect unity and planning of one another as well. Last week, we looked at God the Father in the planning of our salvation. God the Son in the accomplishing of His plan. And the Holy Spirit of applying that accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Them working in perfect unity together as the Trinity. This morning in verse 30, Jesus is claiming to be God Himself. You can write out on the margins of your Bible, Jesus claims to be God. And just here in John chapter 10 as well, all of the other places in the Gospels where Jesus makes these type of proclamations and the Jewish leaders pick up stones to stone him, we never see Jesus say, wait, 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 time out. That's not what I meant. He never, he never backs up and says, you misunderstood me. I wasn't claiming to be God. So put the stones down. I wasn't blaspheming God. No, he never, he never once denies what they're attributing he said. And he's affirming this, and they're affirming. They completely understood. They knew what Jesus meant. He was referencing Deuteronomy 6.4, often called the Shema. This was the most basic confession of Judaism. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is really teaching a deeper meaning here of what that scripture meant regarding the Trinity So we see in verse 31, the Jews pick up stones again to stone him. Jesus was claiming to be God himself. Verse 32 of John chapter 10, Jesus answers them and says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you yourself being a man, make yourself God. They clearly understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus clearly said it, and their reaction clearly shows they understood it. So the same is to be true. We should understand Jesus is claiming God himself, and there are many today who would deny Jesus ever did so. But we see it clearly here from every perspective pointing that Jesus did that very thing, that Jesus is himself God. He didn't deny what they understood. But we see Jesus respond to these religious leaders from the Old Testament. And he says, is it not written in your law? The very law they were meaning to uphold by the stoning of Jesus, Jesus points back to their law and says, is it not written in your law? And then he goes on to quote Psalms 82.6, I said you are gods. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High. All of you is what Psalms 82.6 says. So Jesus responds and says, well, time out. Is it not written in your law that some people in the past who were spokesmen of God, that God himself called them gods? 
little g, not gods, as in the same as God, but use the term gods for individuals. So Jesus is saying, hey, if it was used for them in the past and they were mere spokesmen of God, surely it can be used for me, the Son of God, God himself. I can use this term. But I want you to see that Jesus referenced something right after this. He says, the scriptures cannot be broken. We see Jesus here. He gives a defense in the first half of verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came... But then in the rest of verse 35, he tells them why his argument is valid. It would be kind of like a lawyer saying his evidence and why his evidence is true and then going back and then backing it up with case law, case law after case law of why this is true, why we can trust this. Jesus says, well, these people were called gods. Surely this can apply to me. And then he goes to say, for the scripture cannot be broken. Here's my defense And because it was written by God, spoken by God, inspired by God, this is why this is valid. You can't deny it because it's from God himself. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at this, not the argument that Jesus used, but his evidence that he's citing. The whole linchpin of Jesus' argument was the authority, the validity of Scripture. The whole linchpin of his argument was not just a passage in the Old Testament. It wasn't just a verse. Jesus built his whole argument, his whole defense to these men who are about to stone him. He built it on a single word from the Old Testament. A single word. God's. He looked back in the Old Testament. This shows us how much authority, power, and credibility that Jesus gave to the Scriptures. That every single word given in the Old Testament is from God himself. That's the type of authority that Jesus, he built his whole case on it. He said, listen, if this word was used in the Old Testament in this manner, surely it can be used of me because the scripture cannot be broken. Culture today, unfortunately, doesn't give scripture this type of authority. Even those within the church, they may claim, and if you listen carefully, they may claim the Bible as a whole can guide you to God. Or the summary of God's word is truth. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't say the Bible is mostly true or that it's a guide to God. He says every word is from the Lord and it is structured in such a way that you can trust it. He built arguments from singular words in the Old Testament. And he says scripture cannot be broken. He dogmatically declares his evidence. It's because God cannot lie. Scripture cannot lie. Because God is perfect, church, Scripture, if it's a work of God, must therefore be perfect. God doesn't make imperfect things. He makes perfect if it's his work. If he claims he did this work, it must, in fact, be perfect. So we're going to look this morning at the claims that Jesus makes, the claims God makes, declaring his word to be perfect. I want to look at a couple of early church quotes from the early church leaders, Augustine in the 4th century said, I have learned to hold the scriptures alone inerrant, without error. The 4th century. He also wrote, I believe most firmly that not one of those authors has erred in any respect in writing regarding the New Testament, Old Testament authors. Martin Luther said, I beg and faithfully warn every pious Christian not to stumble at the simplicity of the language and stories, that will often meet him there in Scripture. He should not doubt that however simple they may seem, they are the very words 
works, judgment, and deeds of the high majesty, power, and wisdom of God himself. John Calvin, in his commentary of the New Testament, writes, We owe to the scriptures the same reverence as we owe to God himself. Since it has its only source in him and has nothing of human origin mixed within it. John Wesley says, In all cases, the church is to be judged by the scriptures, not the scriptures by the church. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce says, It was the glory of the church that in the first 16 or 17 centuries, the first 1600 to 1700 years of the Christian church, in every place, despite their difference of opinions on theology or questions of church order, exhibited at least a mental allegiance to the Bible as the supreme authority for the Christian in all matters. It might have been neglected. There might have been disagreements about what it actually taught. It might have even been contradicted, but it was still the word of God. It was the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Did you hear that? 1,600 to 1,700 years, the church, the believers, even though they might have had differences of opinions, even though they, they might have concluded that this meant that or, or differencing of how they saw passages, they didn't doubt God's word. They doubted who? Themselves. So there's two people, and he comes up with conclusion A, and this person comes up with conclusion B, but they never once say, well, well that's what the text says, so that must be right, or, well, the text must be wrong. No, it's, well, maybe I'm wrong or maybe you're wrong, but the text is always right. That, that's where they concluded. They landed, well, we know it's either you or me because the text can't be wrong. But what we have in our day is people questioning the authority of God's word, questioning the authenticity of God's word, questioning the inerrancy of God's word, questioning the infallibility of God's word, that maybe it's just mostly true. Maybe some of it, it's, it's a guide for life, but it's not the guide. It's not perfect. It's, it's mostly good. And so they don't even have the ability to doubt within themselves that maybe they don't see a contradiction in the text. I have a couple of false biblical views of the text I want to share this morning, and I'm actually going to use individuals' names, not because I want to destroy individuals, but because I want to inform all of the listeners that God has given. I want to inform you to show you the authority of God's word, the inerrancy of God's word that God's word claims. I'm not saying God's not using these individuals. I'm not saying that they're not saved. But what I am saying is what they're saying goes against the word of God. And because we are teachers, we're going to be held accountable for that. And so you need to understand what people are saying and what they're inferring in some of their language. The first I want to share is a man by the name of Adam Hamilton. He's a senior pastor of the largest Methodist church in America, close to 9,000 weekend attenders. This is what he says. The biblical authors were people like us. Christians do not hold, as Muslims do, that our holy book was dictated by God. The biblical authors wrote in particular times, for particular audiences, out of a particular context. Part of rightly interpreting scripture is reading it in the light of what we can know about its historical and cultural context, the author's purposes in writing, and knowing something about the people they were writing to. He goes on to say, When I think of inspired, I think of God influenced. 
This leaves open a variety of ways in which the biblical authors were influenced by God. You might be thinking, well, I didn't hear the the clear contradiction there, but it's there. Some of the wording kind of lends itself to open-ended, especially when you begin to say, well, they were writing to a particular culture, and this is what they were dealing with in their culture, because then that kind of takes God's word and says it only applies here for that situation. Now, we need to understand every time we come to a book in the Bible, we need to understand the culture, we need to understand the history, we need to understand the setting and the date, but that doesn't mean that God's rules and laws only applied then. God is unchanging. Because God is unchanging what he spoke a thousand years ago, the same type of things transition over to today. Now, the setting might be a little bit differently, but because God doesn't change, his commands do not change. But he goes on, he wrote a book called Making Sense of the Bible. And throughout it, in his book, he affirms Christians should have a, quote, high view of Scripture. A high view of Scripture. Something we would all agree in. We need to have a high view of Scripture. But listen to what he says. This is on page 276 of his book. The Bible informs my relationship with my wife. Right? It informs how I should treat my wife. As it should, he goes on, inform how two homosexuals should share their lives of love. And just as heterosexuals are called to fidelity in marriage and celibacy in singleness as the highest ideal, so too are homosexual Christians called to such ideals. One doesn't get a pass for immoral behavior by being homosexual, but most homosexuals I've met are not looking for a pass to be immoral. It's probably because he's already given them a pass by calling them homosexual Christians, which is not in the word of God. But he says they're not looking for a pass to be immoral. They're looking for a blessing to share their life with another person as a companion and a helper. Thrown out the word of God to still say they have a high view of scripture. Church, God is unchanging in his truths. He's not politically correct. All of us, All of us struggle with things we want to do that are against God, against the Spirit. They're from the flesh. Every single one of us has desires, just as someone who's homosexual has desires to live out their passions in their flesh. We all have these things. And God says for all of us that when we become a Christian, we put those things to death. Now, every single one of us still have desires, even as believers. But I'm not going to claim that I am an adulterous Christian. We don't see that type of claim. Well, I'm a Christian, but, but I live in adultery. I, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I, I'm a pathological lying Christian. You know, we're called to put these things to death, and we struggle with them, and we may fall back into them, but we push against them, and we repent of these things. We don't give a pass to any of us, because all of us have desires within us that wage war against the Spirit of God. So God is not... Just trying to overlook and say, well, all of us can keep all of our sins. No, throughout Scripture, all the time it says, put to death those things. That's your former way of life. Acts says, that's what we used to be. And it lists a long list of things. That's who you were. But this is who you are now as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Someone else I wanted to mention, and again, I'm not trying to destroy this person. I'm not saying they're not a Christian, that God is not using them. I'm just saying that how they're building their case is wrong, and it's it's against the authority of the Word of God. Andy Stanley said something recently 
that was very alarming regarding the historical accuracy of Adam and Eve in Genesis. Listen to what he said. The foundation of our faith is not the scripture. The foundation of our faith is not the infallibility of the Bible. The foundation of our faith is something that happened in history. And the issue is always, who is Jesus? That's always the issue. The scripture is simply a collection of ancient documents that tell us that story. Downplaying the authority and the power of the word of God when we call them documents. It's not that they were just documents that were written, but he goes on to say, regarding the historical accuracy of Adam and Eve, here's why I believe that Adam and Eve actually happened. Not because the Bible says so, but because of the Gospels. There's a huge disconnect there. Jesus talks about Adam and Eve, and it appears to me that he believed they were actual historical figures. And if he believed they were historical, I believe they were historical because anybody that can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, I just believe anything they have to say. Here's another example that he shared. You know why I believe in the resurrection? Not because of the B-I-B-L-E, but because Matthew saw it. Mark talked to somebody who saw it. Luke interviewed a bunch of people who saw it. John saw it. Peter saw it. James saw it. I don't know what happened to dinosaurs, and I don't know anything about Adam and Eve, but I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And when you start believing Jesus rose from the dead, you're going to take the Old Testament a lot more seriously, said Stanley. Well, what about all the things that Jesus didn't talk about? By the way, the only reason we know those things is from the Bible. I mean, so to say, well, I pick and choose the Gospels as authoritative and only the Gospels can speak of all the other things in the Bible, well, you're picking and choosing what you choose to give authority to. And Jesus referenced the Old Testament. The Old Testament references the New Testament. They all fit together. Hebrews, I mean, they all say all of Scripture is inspired by God. So when you make the claim, I don't believe it because the Bible says so. I don't believe it because Genesis reportedly says it to be clear and accurate and goes through listing it out. But you say, I believe it only because Jesus says it. Well, you've built your argument on something that doesn't need to be built on. Because what about all the things that Jesus doesn't talk about? Now, Now, what about the historical accuracy of the Tower of Babel? Jesus, I don't, I don't recall Jesus ever talking about this, the tower. There, there, I mean, there's a lot in the Old Testament Jesus doesn't talk about. So when you take the argument there and you say, I only believe it because Jesus says it, and it's in the Gospels, there's, you're leaving out so much the rest of the Bible that maybe that's up for interpretation. Maybe that was more of a, a myth. Maybe that was just a story. Maybe that wasn't historical accurate. Major, major problems in these views. I want to transition to what the Bible claims for itself. What God teaches us is the Bible. You have a handout here in your bulletin. I'm just going to work through these different points. About what the Bible claims for itself. Students in here, when you go to college and in high school, even in middle school, you're going to hear teachers and professors And they're going to rail against that Christianity is built on myth 
and that you can't really trust the scriptures because you don't know who wrote them and there's contradictions and there's errors and all these things because most of culture, secular and unfortunately even many in the church, don't hold to high view of scripture. But that's what we're going to look at this morning, so I hope you're taking good notes. Number one, the Bible is infallible, meaning there can be no errors in God's word. It is impossible because God is perfect and he wrote the scriptures, therefore the scriptures are perfect. Psalms 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Very clear. The law of the Lord is perfect. So either we, we reject that and say, well, it doesn't necessarily mean perfect. No, we accept it because God himself says the law, his law is perfect. And then it goes on, at restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. All of Psalms 119 goes through this, but here's a few verses from Psalms 119. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Not some of them, all of them. Long have I known from your testimony that you have founded them forever. His testimony is forever. His word is timeless. It doesn't expire. It's not like God gave a command to this generation and, and after 50 years, his word expires, and now he needs to give a new revelation. His word is timeless. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Charles Spurgeon says, if I did not believe in the absolute infallibility of the scriptures, I would never enter the pulpit to preach again. The scriptures cannot be broken. Number two, the Bible is inherent. Inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. Pastor John MacArthur says this, infallibility speaks of the totality. Inerrant speaks of the parts. It is infallible, as the old reformers used to say, as a rule of faith and practice. It is also inerrant in every single part. So it is not only infallible in the truth it conveys as a whole, but is inerrant in every word. Inerrant every word. This goes back to where Jesus picks a single word and says, I can build my case even on a single word because God's word is inerrant. Has God described himself with clear commands, with clear words? If so, are his words reliable? It must be yes if God's the one doing the description of himself. That's a truth claim and it must be true. Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God proves true. Psalms 12.6, the word of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, as pure as pure can be is the word of God. Refined to absolute perfection. James 1.25 says, scripture is referred to as the perfect law. Either we reject these things and say, well, they're mostly true or they are true. There was a study done. 85% of students in one of America's largest evangelical seminaries stated, this was stated that they do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. A poll of, or sorry, 85% of the students in America's largest evangelical seminary stated they do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. 85%. In 1987, this is a poll of 10,000 U.S. clergymen, 74% replied, When asked if they believe in the scriptures as inspired, 
inerrant word of God in faith, history, and secular matters, 95% of Episcopalians said no. 87% of Methodists said no. 82% of Presbyterians said no. To our Presbyterian friends, I'm not sure if that's PCA or PCUSA or if they had split off at this time. I'm sure PCA would be a lower percentage than that, but 82% in this study. 77% of American Lutherans said no, and 67% of American Baptists said no, that they don't believe that the Scriptures are inspired and inerrant Word of God. To believe in the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture is a rarity in our day. They may say the Bible is a reliable guide and its intended messages to mankind. But inerrancy gets to the specific words and says these are the very words of God himself. And because of that, we can trust them. I want us to look at number three. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. Largely ignored today. We treat the Bible as a feather that tickles someone's ear rather than authoritative from God himself, a decree. To use Andy Stanley again in his book, Deep and Wide, in a recent talk and interviews, Andy Stanley argues that preachers should avoid saying the Bible says or that God says. He said we should stop saying that in favor of simply citing the human biblical author just to say what Paul says or Peter says. His reasons in using phrases like the Bible says we assume a person is a Christian because only a Christian takes the Old Testament and the New Testament as authoritative. So if I'm going to preach to people who aren't Christians, I have to leverage a different point of authority if I'm going to expect them to track along with me. Church, there is no other point of authority that we have other than the scriptures given by God. What other point of authority do we have in someone's life? But the scriptures. And every time in the scriptures we see people preaching to unbelievers, do we know? Do we see what they're doing? Do we see what they're using? They use scripture. I'll say Paul uses scripture. Peter uses scripture. All the apostles use scripture. Jesus himself uses scripture. Acts 17.2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and spent many days, three Sabbath days, reasoning with women, Greeks, Jews, unbelievers, people of all, to- all walks of life, and they're all unbelievers. And he went in there, and he didn't say, well, since you don't believe in the Bible, since you don't believe in the authority of the word of God, I'm going to appeal to a different type of your senses. No, he went in, And it says in verse 3, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, people who didn't even believe in the authority of the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And the important part is, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women in that city. He used the scriptures. They were unbelievers. Psalms 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Can you get better than perfect, church? No. The law of the Lord is perfect, and then it goes on to say, in converting a soul. Converting, unbeliever to believer. It says scripture alone is perfect in doing that. If you can't get better than perfect, why would you want to try? 
That's what God's word says is the law of the Lord is perfect in bringing about salvation to an unbeliever's life. Even if they don't agree with it. Even if they don't believe in it. To say, and I've talked to many unbelievers where they say, prove to me God's existence. Or talk with me about this. And I'll grab my Bible and they say, no, I want to hear it from, not from the Bible. I, I want you to prove it without the Bible. And many times what we do is we say, okay, and we put the Bible down. That's like me saying, I don't believe words exist, so you don't use your words to have a conversation with me. I mean, if I don't believe words exist, we're not going to have a conversation. So I'm not going to leave my authority, my foundation, because I don't believe it. I mean, if I'm willing to leave my authority and my foundation, do I even believe it? I mean, if Scripture says it's the very Word of God that must change an individual... We can't leave it. We can't, we can't say, well, because they don't accept it, I can't use it. That's not what anyone did in the New Testament. It's because it's inspired by God, and from God, it would make sense. It's authoritative. Listen, when a king speaks, everyone in his kingdom is under his authority, regardless of if they want to be or not, right? So a king gives a decree and people who are accepting of it hears it. But if someone belittles his decree or rejects his decree, does that still not mean they're not under the authority of the king? This is exactly the way the scripture is. You can belittle it, you can reject it, you could ignore it, but you're still under authority to it. Just because you don't agree with it doesn't mean it's not your authority. And we can't leave the scripture to appeal to their senses. Romans 1 teaches everyone knows God, but they reject and suppress God because They love the way they're living, and they don't love the things of God. Jesus teaches you're either of God the Father, or you're of what? Of Satan. I mean, there's only two kingdoms. There's only two two fathers. And all of us at one time were of our father, Satan, until God saved us, and now we're of God the Father. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law... The law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I think many times we begin to think that unbelievers are actually in the judge's seat. Picture a judge here and the judge is sitting there and what what ends up happening is the, the unbeliever says, give me evidence of God. Give me things I need to believe in. Tell me how this happens. Or prove to me this exists. Or where did this happen? And they start demanding that you answer their questions. And we respond like we have to convince them. This is exactly how you treat a judge in a case. You give them evidence. And you bring evidence before them. And you're trying to convince them to change their mind. The problem is the unbeliever is not in the judge's seat, according to the scriptures. They're in what seat? They're in the hot seat, right? I mean, they're not in the judge's seat. They're, they're in the, the seat that's being tried, being condemned. And we're the one who's on behalf trying to appeal to them to turn away because they're the one who's guilty. They're the one who's going to face the wrath of God for their sins. But there is another way. There is Jesus Christ who stepped in and paid for their sins. But they're not the one that we're trying to appeal to. They're not our authority. God the Father our authority. God is our Father. God is our authority. He's the one that we're trying to please in our nature of evangelism. 
This would be like an example of my child who, let's say, my two-year-old is on the floor playing, happened the other day, and I say, hey, Eli, come here. I need you to come here. Let's have lunch. I've given a command, right? I'm the authority. Does he have a choice in what to do? Yes. Does, does he have the option of staying neutral? No. He either comes in obedience or he stays and plays in what? Disobedience. When the word of God is preached, there's no such thing as someone sitting there hearing the word of God saying, hmm, I'm going to think about that for a little while. No. God's word demands to be heard because it comes from the king. It's authoritative. It's when I tell my two-year-old to do something or not to do something. He, he can't simply just continue to exist in his same way. That's disobedience. So he's either obedient or he's disobedient. That is if he hears me, right? Which is questionable. Questionable of, did he hear us really or not? You know, that's a struggle. Pray for us in that struggle. Because he'll be, he'll be 100 yards away and we can say, treat you know, and, and, and he'll run to us, you know, but 100 yards away, you're like yelling for him and he's just running like he never hears you or even 10 yards away. So, but if he does hear and we know he hears, he, he can't continue to do what he wants to do. There's no such thing as neutrality. So because the scriptures have authority in our lives, what does it mean for us as believers? Well, it means regarding forgiveness. Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins again, and even sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I'm sorry, I repent, you must forgive him. That's an authoritative command to you as believers. Is there someone in your life who you are withholding forgiveness from? As a believer, this is a command. It is authoritative. God says, you cannot continue to do this. It's a decree from God himself to us. Colossians 3.8, regarding our gossip. Maybe we struggle with foul language or, or something, even in our mind. Maybe it doesn't come out, but it's still in there. Colossians 3.8, now you must put them all away. Put them to death. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. When the word of God goes out, it is authoritative. You must do these things if you're a believer. You put these things to death. You don't continue to live in them. Put anger to death, wrath to death, slander to death. Scripture calls us to love our spouse, to love our wives, to love our husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a fragile vase since they are heirs with you of the grace of life that God has given us. The scripture goes on to say, and it's authoritative, if you don't live this way, your prayers are hindered. So if you're living in the wrong manner with your spouse, with your wife, God says there's not even really a point in praying because you have to get that right first. Because that's a, that's a relationship that's supposed to symbolize the relationship you and I have. And when you're destroying that, it says your prayers are going to be hindered to God. It's authoritative. Just because you disagree with that doesn't, doesn't matter. It says this is the way it is, a decree from the king. Number four, I want to move to the Bible is complete. The Bible is complete. 
God did not forget one single thing in his word. Thus, there's also no reason to have future revelations from God because his word is complete. It's done with. It's built on, Ephesians says, on the prophets and the apostles. The word of God is built on the foundation of those things. How many times do you lay a good foundation? Once. The foundation has been laid. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture. How much does all mean? All scripture, right? Is breathed out by God. If it's breathed out by God, can God breathe out wrong things? No, he's perfect. This is why we believe the Bible is perfect. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That the man of God, the woman of God, may be what? Complete. Complete. There's not one thing in scripture that God left out that we may need to be the man or woman of God in any situation we face. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you take away from it. You don't add, you don't take away, because it's complete. Revelation 22, 18. I testify every man that hears the words of these prophecy. If any man shall add to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man takes away the words of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life in the holy city. These things are written in this book. There's a beginning and an end. God starts it. God finishes it. It's closed. And it's complete. So everything we need in whatever situation we're facing is in the word of God. Number five, my last point here, the Bible is effective. We've already seen in in Psalms. But there's something that we say, I, I said it all the time, didn't know what it meant. For most of my life, but we make this profession all the time. God's word does not return void, right? God's word does not return void. This comes from Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. Not sure if I have this one on your sheet there. Great. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish... So it yields forth seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return void. Or it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I want to read that again. We've seen this all through the book of John. When the preaching is done of God's word, it will always have its intended purposes and effects. God says that his word, when it is sent out, the preaching of his word, the teaching of his word, you using the word to your spouse, to your coworkers, to your unbelieving friends and your neighbors, when you speak the word of God or you recite scripture, it says that word goes out and it does not come back until what happens. Every purpose that God has for that word will be fulfilled. It will be completed. My word will not return back to me, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve, the purpose for which I sent it. God's word is powerful. It is effective. It's God's word and his word alone that changes anything. And God's in control of the change he desires to bring about. The Bible is alive. It is active. 
It's not this passive, cushy, weak-kneed feeling aura that we sometimes use and hope that it does something. Scripture says it is powerful and it is effective to accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. This is why we have to use God's Word. This is why we should memorize Scripture so that when we're talking with someone, we can fit it in in a way that just continues to flow. Listen to how God describes His Word. The Word of God describes itself as a sword that pierces. The Bible many times is, is looked at like a feather that, that tickles an unbeliever's ear. When Scripture says it is a sword that pierces, it can cut through bone, it can cut through marrow, it cuts to the heart of who an individual is. It can cut through everything exactly how God wants it to, like a scalpel. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This type of language was used in first century. Whenever they'd go to the gyms or coliseums, men would work out and they would work out naked. And they went and they worked out. And scripture talks about being laid bare. As in, you are naked before God, arms wide open, you're spread on the ground, naked before God. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. And this is how scripture is. When you use scripture in someone's life, It's going to accomplish because God knows everything going on in your life and that individual's life. I mean, God is intently in that situation, and God's word will accomplish what it wants to accomplish. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, His word is a fire that consumes. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord? It's not a a warming feeling that we use to to maybe warm somebody. Sometimes we use the scriptures just like it's a a little soft aura, like a warming thing that maybe we can just bring somebody. No, God says my word is a consuming fire. You get close to it, you get burned by how God wants it to happen. It is a consuming fire. It produces results. The rest of Jeremiah 23 says, And is not my word like a hammer which shatters the rock? It is effective. It is powerful. It does what it intends to do. To reject the word of God is to one day be shattered by the hammer of God's word. No one is going to resist the word of God. One day every knee will what? And every tongue will by the word of God. There is no resisting. They will be shattered now in repentance and in humility in turn, or they will be shattered later. But the word of God is effective, and it will bring about its purposes. This is an example of preaching. I mean, do we understand how weird preaching is? Maybe, I know I didn't, but preaching, I mean, to work 20, 30 hours working on a sermon, and then to come, and in an hour, preach, and this sermon never to be preached by me in the same way ever again. One time preached, my words go out, you hear it, you leave this place, 
I mean, in all of our jobs, we create things, we build things, whether it's a website, there's things to show, there's a house, we can demolish things, but there's, there's tangible evidence. But in preaching, you preach. And if it's up to me, if it's up to me and my words or my artistic flair to make things come alive, Scripture doesn't say that it's up to me. It's up to the power of the Word of God. If it's up to the preacher to jump around to play soft emotional music or to drive a, a motorcycle or a car out on stage to keep you attended to the Word of God, that acts like God's Word is nothing. It acts like we need to get people's attention to focus on the effective, powerful, authoritative Word of God. No, when, when we preach the Word of God, you will hear it, and you are either rejecting of it or you are accepting of it because it is authoritative and it is effective. Paul in Corinthians says, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, because if I did that, the cross would be empty of its power. He goes on, When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He goes on to say, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I cannot add any more power to the power already within the word of God, and no preacher can. It is what it is, and it is powerful. James Denny, a Scottish theologian and preacher, said this, No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. No man can do both. They can't stand up and present the sermon in such a way to build themselves up or to make themselves look good or make themselves look impressive or that he himself is clever, but also that Christ is mighty to save. When the word of God is rightly preached, it will bring about every single desire God has so planned. That's what we mean when we say the word of God will not return void. Now, I grew up in a church. This is where I may get in the most trouble of my whole sermon, ironically. But I grew up in a church that gave an invitation every Sunday morning. And it was by a show of hands that you raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus Christ. And the problem here, and I don't have anything against invitations, but if we think that the power of the Word of God is either going to be helped or hindered because an invitation was either given or not given, we belittle the power and effectiveness and authority of the Word of God. If we think a human, man-made, ideal system of calling someone to do something is going to produce a result that God's Word cannot already produce, we belittle the power and effectiveness and the authority of the Word of God. Because the Word will accomplish its purposes. R.C. Sproul says it this way, the power is in the word of God, not in our methods. Churches can spend 80% of their time, and we've done it here before, 80% of our time trying to fix the methods on how to get this to happen or more people here when it's in the word of God. That's what changes lives. The word of God is effective. The scripture cannot be broken. It is inerrant, infallible. It is perfect. It is effective. It is authoritative. It can change your marriage. 
It can change your children. It can change the unbelievers in your life. It can change you. It can change your desires. It can grow your love for others. It can grow your humility for the Lord. All of these things are accomplished by God's word, not our methods. So I ask you, church, do you know God's word? Do you cherish God's word? Do we set aside time to dig into God's word? Defend God's word. It's under attack today, even within the church. We have a prayer team that will be available after the service right here. I would love to chat with any of you if you have questions on the authority or the power or the word of God, how you can even begin to know the word of God more. We have connect groups that meet throughout the week. I want to transition from my sermon to kind of give an update. If you have your bulletin, some time ago we we launched a campaign here at the church regarding our Set Free And I want to take a moment to give everyone an update on our debt-free reduction campaign called Set Free. We launched at the beginning of this year. You have a bulletin and there's a graph on that that we tried to make simple, but we understand that it's not that simple. So I wanted to take a moment and try to simplify it for you. I want to kind of give us a snapshot of where we're at and where we're planning to be in the next 30 days. So as many of you know, The church was pursuing a resolution, an ongoing legal legal battle regarding our mortgage here. We give God the praise that after three years of pursuing this, at the beginning of 2016, we were finally able to come to a settlement agreement, which is what we're currently raising funds for. This initial agreement for the whole church um, building and everything else was for $5.1 million payable over the next seven years with a few lump sum payments uh, built into the schedule. So what you see, that's what you see at the top of the, the graph here is that total 5.1 million. The Lord has already previously provided for our first payment, which you see here, paid to date 1,250,000. So we've already paid that. What we're currently in is a 90-day sprint raising or uh, raising our remaining funds for our next payment due April 28th. That's another payment of 1,250,000. So we have about 40 days left of this sprint to raise funds for that. And in helping us with this next large payment, God, through the leading of his people, um, just, just what a blessing. Some, some people have came and said, I'll match dollar for dollar, every dollar given for this campaign up to $2 million. So for every dollar given in this support of this, there's going to be a matching dollar given for that amount. So that's what you see here is we as the congregation so far from the beginning of January, have raised $383,968. That has been matched by 383968 So that brings us to a total, as of right now, that we've raised so far of $767,000. This leaves a remaining balance of about 482000 But when you factor in that there's going to be a matching Uh, campaign dollar for dollar. That means over the next 40 days, what we really need to raise is about $241,000. If we raise that $241,000, it will be matched dollar for dollar by another $241,000. Some of you may be wondering what this looks like long term. Um, After the upcoming April 28th payment, we don't have any large payments coming up until 
years from then, in 2020 and 2023. So after we get this first kind of sprint, this is the first big hurdle that we really have. Once we're over this, we'll have time to be able to look at other options, potentially restructure the loans and and come up with other plans. But until we get over this first hurdle, we're not able to do so. So throughout this whole time, we are paying a 3.5% interest rate on the outstanding debt. So, of course, the sooner we can get this paid for or transitioned over to even something with a lower interest rate, the better. So our immediate need is to take care of this upcoming payment. And after this is dealt with, we can look at some future options. So, again, in summary, by April 28th, we still need to raise about 482000 But when you factor in the matching program, that means we need to raise about 241000 over the next 40 days. So we are able, some of you have asked, we're able to accept stocks and bonds for those who may be interested in donating uh, appreciated stocks or bonds um, through that avenue. We just want to say that we are so grateful that God has, has really brought us to where we're at over these three years, um, really just submitted all of us and made us humble. We, we understand that this is all God's doing. There's nothing we could have done uh, to get out of this situation And God receives all the glory for where we've been, where we're at, where we're going. It's all him. It's his body. It's his church. And so we submit to that. We give God praise that he is faithful to his people. We want to say on behalf of the the pastors and the staff and and all the members, uh, thank everyone. Thank you uh, for for the support that you've given. Uh, Where we're at so far is just incredible. So thank you for your ongoing support, for your prayers for allowing God to grow you during this time. Um, It would have been so easy just to to leave, but God has done tremendous things in all of our lives. Would you pray with me? And then we have a couple more announcements and then we'll be dismissed. God, I thank you for this morning. God, help us to understand your word is powerful. It is effective. It is perfect. God, we can trust in your word in everything. God, it is mighty to save. It is effective in its purposes. God, it is never-ending. It will never cease to exist. It is complete. Everything we need for this life, we can find in your word. God, may you keep us fixated on your word. Help us to understand the power of your word, the truth of your word. We thank you for preserving it for us. It's in Jesus' name. We pray, amen.